This is the life story of a man called Martin Lavin. I'm outside the Gresham Hotel in Dublin because in the 50s and 60s, this was one of his favorite spots. He'd come here for his evening meal, and just before sitting down, he'd phone his wife back home and tell her, take the dinner out of the oven, Elizabeth, I won't be home. What's amusing about this is that home for Martin Lavin was actually five and a half thousand miles away in Michigan in the United States. Usually, he decided to fly to Ireland on the spur of the moment. He'd leave for work very early in the morning, check in with the office, and then head for Detroit Airport and a plane to Ireland. I've also chosen the Gresham because it's where he and I spent many a pleasant hour in the 60s. We were friends, and although I thought I knew him well, it's only since researching for this documentary I've discovered how little I knew about the man. He was enigmatic, complicated, flamboyant, absorbing, very, very generous, and quite, quite ruthless. This is the story of Martin Lavin. Martin! Martin was born in Kilshimar County, Mayo, in 1902 to Jack and Honora. His father had worked in America in St. Louis as a hod carrier and in a steel mill. He came home with enough money to build the family a larger house in the town. It was an unhappy return. He drank heavily and didn't get along with Honora. For her part, she's remembered as being quite strict and domineering. Frances Foley was Martin's first cousin. She remembers him as a child. Oh, his reputation as a child was he was bold. He was very bold. I remember we had a shed where we had turf and there was galvanised on it. And he'd never pass without firing in stones and tapping them off the galvanised. But uh, he was always wanting notice. He was what you'd call bullying now, if you like to put it that way. Despite his rowdiness, Martin did well in school well enough to get a job at 16 in the British Civil Service in London. Two years later, he transferred to the Civil Service in Dublin, where he joined the 3rd Dublin Brigade of the IRA. The next we hear of him is on November 21st, 1920. 28 Upper Pembroke Street in Dublin. The story is told that at a few minutes to nine on the morning of Sunday, November the 21st, Martin and 13 others gathered outside this building, which was a rooming house then. On the order, they went inside and shot several British soldiers. Accounts differ as to the number killed. Some say as many as eight, including two spies. The spies were members of the Cairo Gang, a British intelligence unit sent to take on Michael Collins and his squad. The squad were known as the Twelve Apostles, who had been so successful against the British in previous months. Quite quickly after the shootings, the auxiliaries were on the scene and surrounded the area, but Martin and one of his comrades escaped to Dolphin's Barn, where they joined in a football match. The story is told that they had the presence of mind to wear football gear under their clothes and to have their names published in the paper as members of the team. Those shootings were followed by the British firing on the crowd in Croke Park later in the day. The following year, 1921, Martin Lavin's colleagues in the civil service suspected his Republican leanings and he was fired. He returned to the Kilshima area where he joined a local IRA unit. The British were actively harassing the population, including on one occasion surrounding the church in Kilshima and terrorizing those inside at Mass. As well as carrying out attacks on black and tans and auxiliaries, Martin and his IRA comrades kept the local population in line. Johnny Snee, the last surviving IRA man from East Mayo, describes how they treated women who associated with British soldiers. They just cut their hair. <laughs> you know, if there was anybody associating with this English soldiers, they just trimmed the hair off them. Had them tied outside the chapel gate on Sunday morning. 
when I was going in, it, you know, some, there'd be always some girls would cohabit with them. So that cured them. <laughs> they'd have a sign around the nation, the, the breast, you know. Or cured. <laughs> cured them. Kilchima school teacher Hugh McTighg remembers a story about Martin at the time. A local egg merchant was blacked by Sinn Féin because he sold eggs to Britain. Another local egg merchant was acceptable to the Republicans, but unfortunately for the farmers, he paid far less for their eggs than the merchant who was blacked. This man came in with a very large consignment of eggs, and he needed the money, and he needed all he got because he wanted to buy shoes for his children. So he came in from the Cahar direction, from the Kilkelly direction, and he sold the eggs to the man that hadn't the blessing of the Sinn Féin movement at the time. And, of course, it was immediately reported. So Martin went out onto the Kilkelly Road to the townland of Gowlboy and waited for him to set off home. And when he arrived out just outside the town, Martin relayed him and took the shoes that he had bought for his children from him and brought them to Chapel Street. And they tried the shoes on the youngsters, all the youngsters that they could lay their hands on around Chapel Street, and they wouldn't fit anybody that was available for shoes or that they were willing to give them to. 1922 brought the prospect of the 26-county free state, and as spring gave way to summer, hopes of peace gave way to the horror of civil war. Those who had fought the British split and got ready to fight each other. Martin joined the anti-treaty side, known by their enemies as the Irregulars, or locally as Bolshies. Among his former comrades who joined the Free State Army were his neighbours in Kilchimath, the Rouen brothers. The Rouens became a focus for Martin's hatred. Early in June, he appeared outside Mass in Kilchimath holding a revolver. He was about to shoot the Rouens as they came out of the church. The crowd intervened and he was disarmed and sent on his way. Martin's gun was given to a neutral observer, but it found its way back into his hands and he was to use it to deadly effect later in the month. On June 28, 1922, the civil war broke out with an attack on the four courts in Dublin by the National Army. On the next day, Thursday the 29th, it came to Kilshimah. The last Thursday of every month was fair day in the town. Martin and his IRA colleagues came into the town between 9 and 10 in the evening. The cattle were all in pens at the railway station, ready to be shipped out, and the pubs were full. In Rouen's shop and pub, the Rouen brothers were helping out with the busy fair day crowd. Martin and his group headed straight for them. Three IRA men went inside. Martin stayed outside. The details of what happened next are in dispute, but in the event, two men died. Jerry Morden is the nephew of Willie Morden, one of the IRA men who came into the town, and he tells the story told to him by his father, who said the purpose of the raid was to deal with remnants of the RIC. My father told me how this common of the IRA went to Rouen's in Kalshima to disarm the RIC, they had them out of the barracks and they were still coming to Kalshimah and they were still hanging around Kalshimah waiting to get paid and those people that were paying them, the meeting place was Ruans in Kalshimah 
and those blokes were getting tired of them hanging around the town, so they decided to shift them, run them out of the town. And they went to Rowan's, and when they got inside in the building, there was a crowd of those blokes sitting around a table. When they got into the room that they were in, somebody thought that one of the Rowan's had a gun under the table, and apparently this laughing fella started shooting, and he shot Rowan, and he shot Willie. Witnesses in the bar that night said that one of the raiders pointed a gun at Jimmy Rowan. He grabbed it, pushed it upwards, caught the IRA man around the neck, the gun went off, and a shot went through the ceiling. Another IRA man then shot Jimmy through the back. Then Tommy was pulled from the shop and thrown onto the footpath outside. Almost immediately, Tommy was shot as he lay on the footpath. He called for a priest, shouting, Martin Lavin has shot me. Then another shot was fired and this hit Willie Morden. Willie Morden staggered across the road and he dropped the other side of the road and the blood, the reckon, came out of him like it was coming out of a spraying can. And he fell across the road outside the, I don't know, the Hibernian bank and his blood ran down the road and into the drain. So apparently then Welshers, Jerry Welshers, they came out and they picked Willie up and they brought him into, into their house, into their sitting room. And apparently Willie died in their sitting room. Martin Lavin shouted to the crowd, keep back, I'll shoot, and ran down the street and out of the town. Willie Morden died almost immediately. Tommy Rowan died five days later in Castlebar Hospital. His brother Jimmy, who had been shot in the back, survived the attack. Lavin wasn't seen in Kilshima for over 20 years. Martin Lavin spent that night under a bridge just outside the town and made his way to a series of safe houses before going to Belfast. Sometime later, he had his red hair dyed black and was passing through the city unrecognised that is, until Joe Mulhern's mother saw him. She was a Kelchima woman studying in the city. She was down the street or something, and she saw this man, and she recognised him. Now, Martin had a head of red hair, but this man's hair was dyed black, and she recognised Martin, but she didn't pretend to know him. And she never got a chance to ask him about it in later years, but I did. And he was appreciative of the fact that my mother didn't say anything. Martin didn't just change his hair colour, but uh, also his identity. He said his name was Michael Mulderick. Mulderick was a neighbour from Kilchima who had relatives in Antrim. Martin sought them out and told them he was their cousin from Mayo who had come visiting. They didn't know their cousin to see, so they believed him and took him in. The husband was a policeman and he, he was wanted at that particular time. And he asked the policeman, would he bring him down to the docks? He wanted to go to Liverpool. And um, the policeman said, well, I will, but will it wait till I change out of my uniform? Oh, no, no, no. You keep your uniform on. <laughs> it wouldn't be the last time Martin Lavin would adopt a new identity. And given the fact that uh, documentation relating to the early years of this century is notoriously incomplete, both here and in America... It was an ideal opportunity for many people to reinvent themselves and rewrite their pasts. We next hear of Martin in the United States in early 1923. A report in the Cleveland Plain Dealer says he's in hospital in the city recovering from a bayonet wound. He said he received it fighting in Ireland. The paper reports that while in hospital he's visited by the widow of Terence McSweeney, the Lord Mayor of Cork who died in hunger strike. Also while there, his immigration to the United States is being challenged by the authorities. 
He pleads political asylum. The challenge is denied, and he's allowed to stay in America. But his citizenship is an issue which comes back to haunt him in later life. Having left hospital, he gets a job delivering groceries. He also worked for an Irish Republican pressure group and a credit bureau while studying law. Meanwhile, back in Ireland in 1924, the trial of Martin's IRA colleagues takes place. They're charged with murdering Tommy Ruan and Willie Morden. The witnesses identify Martin Lavin as the killer, and his comrades are acquitted of murder. It appears Martin was not even tried in absentia, and the documentation from the police and army at the time does not exist. But Martin does appear in court in America. All rise, the 53rd District Court is now in session. The Honorable Michael K. Haggerty presiding. He's become a lawyer. Although he's not an American citizen, he applies to the bar saying he's from a town in Kansas, a town where the courthouse burned down, destroying all the population's birth certificates. The year was 1931. He had set up his practice in the town of Brighton, Michigan, which he discovered had no lawyer. Brighton had a population of 1,000, small and rural, much like Kilshima. Unlike Kilshima, it had a railway line, but unlike Kilshima, it had a location which would bring it great prosperity. It was situated in Livingston County between the growing city of Detroit and the state capital of Lansing. Local historian Dwayne Zemper remembers how Martin made an impact as soon as he arrived. He had a personality that was so strong that people were afraid not to agree with him in a lot of cases. He would put you on a spot and look you right in the eye and say, don't you think that's right, you know? And you'd nod your head and agree with him. He had, like they say, a golden voice and piercing eyes and red hair. And when he said something, everybody listened. <laughs> you didn't have much choice. <laughs> Martin became a Democrat, even though Livingston County was predominantly Republican. And in America, where many positions like judges and prosecutors are voted on by the electorate, your politics are important. Also in 1931, it was the height of the Depression, so it looked as if Martin had made the wrong decision and ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. But not so. Franklin Roosevelt, a Democrat, was in the White House, and Martin was appointed attorney for the receiver of a local bank that was in trouble. In sorting out the bank's affairs, Martin gave priority to the small depositors and thus antagonized the local establishment. But it was in court that Martin Lavin developed his reputation as a lawyer. It was said he succeeded not because of his knowledge of the law, but because of his personality. Bud Irwin was Martin's main rival for many years. Bud was the local prosecutor, and Martin was the most popular defense attorney in the county. Irwin regularly came up against his courtroom tricks. He would always try to get somebody on the jury whom he knew would never vote for conviction of anybody for anything. And I remember once, uh, he, he just got acquittal after acquittal. Well, then I f suddenly found out that we were picking juries in those days off the street, I found out that we were having a fellow who was the janitor of the courthouse on most of the juries. He's available all the time. And I found out that that guy would never vote for conviction for anybody because it was against his religion. And then 
that taught me a lesson. So he didn't sit on any more juries. I excused him, and I accused Martin of using that guy to win a lot of cases, and he just laughed about it. Lawyer John Brennan remembers one of Martin's antics in court. I remember he had a trial over in Flint, and it was a new judge. And Martin happened to know another judge on that bench who said, hey, Martin, give this new judge a little few lessons. So one of the things Martin would do, he'd always mispronounce the man's name. And it got under this judge's skin. And he'd keep saying, no, Mr. Lavin, it's not Callahan, it's O'Callahan. And then a little while later, Martin would again refer to him as judge, and he'd mispronounce the name again. And he got the judge so upset that the judge had to declare a mistrial. And ultimately, Martin was able to work a deal with the prosecutor because the prosecutor got tired of trying the cases. He would go to the limit. I remember a rape case. He came in defending a fellow for rape. And uh, he was obviously guilty. And uh, I remember Martin cross-examining the lady that was the rapee. Finally got her to admit that her father had been involved in some crime. During the recess, he apparently got a hold of her in the hallway and said, if you don't withdraw your uh, complaint against this man, I'm going to bring out the uh, crime that your father committed. That's how far he would go to uh, swing a jury in his favor. And he had he got an acquittal. Martin mixed regularly with the local Irish community, and it was through this circle he met and married Elizabeth Galbraith. She was a nurse in the TB sanatorium in nearby Howell, and she was, uh, in some ways, his opposite. She came from County Antrim and was a Presbyterian, although she later converted to Catholicism. Barbara McCrary remembers Elizabeth fondly. Oh, a dear lady. She was just a sweetheart. Very much a lady, but also a very strong person in her own way. Spent a lot of time by herself because her husband was always very busy. Sense of humor. She was funnier and all get out. One story she told me one time was uh, Judge Carlin and uh, Martin were very, very close friends. So when the judge was down here in court, he'd spend a night or two nights, depending on what his trial dates were, as I recall. And Martin would never call her and say, I'm bringing someone home for dinner. So she said, I was always surprised. So one night she said he walked in with Judge Carlin and she said, I thought, aha, I've got to take care of this. So she said, I looked up the largest platter I could find and I fixed myself a little tiny bird and I put it in the middle of the table and said, okay, this is your dinner. <laughs> she said, but it never worked because he never changed. He just would bring people in for dinner all the time. No, no she was a lovely, lovely lady, sweet Sweet. Martin and Elizabeth had three children, a girl, Mary Elizabeth, and two boys, Brian and Sean. Brian remembers their home life as being idyllic. I can recall as a youngster how it was that uh, he'd come home. He'd be walking up the sidewalk. We would run and give him a great big hug, jumping up. and We always called our parents mother dear and father dear. It's peculiar. Always did. I mean, it was a race to see who could take off his shoes when he came home. And he'd have his feet up on the footstool, and we'd sit and talk before the dinner was served, and it was a wonderful family. Then came 1944, one of Martin's darkest years. My mother had an especial affinity for Valentine's Day. 
my sister, who had been involved in an accident in 1942 where she was hit by a car by a drunken local and flew 80 feet in the air and 180 feet down the road, became sick two years thereafter on February the 14th of 1944. She uh, went to the hospital in the morning and she passed away that night of pneumonia meningitis. I remember the wailing when they came home from the hospital and the wails at the wailing wall wouldn't have been any more intense. Although he was only five, Martin's son, Sean, well remembers the funeral of his 10-year-old sister. Mary Elizabeth was laid out in my mother and father's bedroom, in my father and mother's bed, and all the flowers. You couldn't see a wall. I mean, it was flowers from every inch of the, in the living room and down our hallway. Uh, I remember trying to give Mary, I climbed up in the bed. I remember that to this day. I tried to give her a Valentine cookie but uh, she wouldn't take it, and that's when Mulliger, you know, but I didn't realize that she was passed away. I had no idea. And Martin's friends, Judge Michael Hegarty and lawyer John Brennan, say the pain of Mary Elizabeth's death never left Martin and Elizabeth. Many times uh, you'd be over there visiting with them, and all of a sudden they start talking about Mary Elizabeth, and they would then, there'd be no one else present but the two of them and, as they'd be talking about Mary Elizabeth, Mary would be with them, and uh, they had left their bedroom, I think, until they parted from that home. The, her bedroom upstairs, they left untouched. I had occasion to be over there at a cocktail hour, and Harley, who, who lived in the basement, was their handyman, and he asked me to help him uh, get something out of the attic. And uh, so we went up there, and I couldn't believe it. It was like a little girl. It was a huge suite. Uh, big bedroom and uh, her closet had every one of her dresses uh, were hung up just as the day that she died uh, everything was uh, untouched uh, although clean uh, apparently Mrs. Lavin would go up as though she were going to come back uh, very strange uh, I mean uh, and this would be what 20, 30, 30 years afterwards yeah. but uh, they both Obviously never got over that. Coincidentally, 1944 was the year in which one of Martin's Civil War enemies died in Kilshima. Jim Ruan, who had been injured on that night in June 1922, died when the shop in which the shootings took place went up in flames. In all, eight people were killed in that fire. After the war, Martin came back to Ireland. In Dublin... He stayed at the Gresham Hotel. It was to be his home away from home for many years to come. And one of his favourite waiters was Tommy Doyle. I was only a commie waiter at that time. And I got struck up a friendship with him. He started talking to me and he was uh, always very, very courteous and very nice with me. We always had a good bit of crack with Martin. He had a dry sense of humour, but very, very genuine man. In the Gresham, Martin entertained lavishly. Every October, for example, he threw a dinner for his old comrades in the IRA in Room 104. Room 104 had just been refurbished, recarpeted to the whole. That was beautiful. And Martin and his ballets were up there having a dinner and then a sing-song and a few drinks. And we had a young assistant manager just starting and out to impress. And he knocked on the door at 104 and told them to cut down on the singing and the noise and to be careful of the rumours had just been refurbished and three of them turned around I remember well they said the three fellas standing at the door 
And they turned and they said, listen, Sonny, we burnt this effing place down in 22. And if you don't F off, we'll burn it down around you. <laughs> That's gospel. He also entertained family, like his first cousin John Kelly, whose son Tom remembers their meetings well. My father used to tell a story about Martin sitting there and they'd be in the lobby and this little bellhop would go by. You remember the bellhops in those days with the little pillbox caps on them? And this bellhop would go by and he'd be saying, Mr. Lovin. And my father would watch this kid, 13 or 14, go by and Martin would put up his hand and say, Youngster, do you know who I am? No, sir. I am Martin Lovin. And here is something to remember me by. And he would hand him over a ten-shilling note, which was an enormous amount of money, and get the message from the bellboy. And half an hour later, the kid would come by again. Mr. Lovin. And the whole thing would be repeated. The whole scenario, including the ten-shilling note. And my father used to come home and say, well, Lavin may be the smartest lawyer in Brighton, Michigan, or wherever the hell he is, but the bellhop in the Gresham Hotel is a hell of a sight smarter than him. And Martin's nephew John, the son of his brother Jimmy, was a boarder in Black Rock College in those days. When he'd come to Dublin, it was a great day for me because I'd get out into the Gresham, get a lot of food into me that I was (laughs) missing. It was always an exciting time for everybody. Everybody looked forward to it, I think. I think he was kind of almost in court, like when he'd be, be at the top of the table and there'd be usually be eight or ten people around and he'd have a conversation going that would work around to kind of setting somebody up for a bit of a laugh. You know, something that most Mayo people do anyway, I think. It's a bit of a sport, isn't it? John's wife Mary remembers narrowly avoiding Martin's wit when she and her husband first went out together. We'd been down at this house for the weekend in Rush, John and myself, and we were driving back to Dublin, and on the way back we met Martin and Jimmy in the car, and Jimmy told me this later himself. He said, uh, I told them you were getting married, and this was John's wife-to-be, and Martin said to him in his usual tones that he wouldn't buy a pair of shoes without trying them on either. (laughs) I was so shocked that Jimmy would tell me this <laughs> because <laughs> it was absolutely hilarious. But the father, that's the sort of guy. And in fact, actually, I think... That's to, typical of his humour, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. It will be that type of, kind of plastic type of... Yeah. I mean, it was it was outrageous at the time, that type of, of humour, you know. It wasn't really acceptable in Holy Catholic Ireland to say that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I mean, to me, I was only about 20 at the time. And mm. in fact, I think, talking to your father he would have liked to have seen me to tell me this mm. <laughs> and see how I reacted. And that was always, I think, in your family that, that tests you, you know, that says something really nasty to see how well you'd take it. And if you fought back, well, that was great. And even though he was a lawyer, Martin defied the law when it suited him. At one stage, the city of Brighton put parking meters outside his office. He promptly pulled them out of the wet cement and threw them in the gutter. For many years, Martin was the boss of the local Democratic Party, a job which gave him significant political influence. But in 1964, his leadership of the party came under attack, literally with fisticuffs. At an infamous convention, a fight broke out over voting procedures, and one delegate tried to hang another smaller man from a coat hook. Martin's son, Sean, remembers the day well. All hell broke loose. 
Uh, they started swinging and this and that. And a lady uh, had a purse with a brick in it. And she was all ready to swing and one thing or another. And I just got up. And I ran up in front just to be by my father's side. Nobody's going to swing at him. Nobody. And it just, it was a real Donnybrook. The old biddy who had the brick in her purse and came looking for trouble. She got taken care of to the extent that she was relieved of her purse until the festivities were over, correct? Yeah, yeah. I didn't hit her. Thirty-some years later, I wish I would have. And Sean was involved in fights of his own, which landed him in jail. He feels he was overprotected and spoiled by his parents following the death of his sister. As a result, he developed a wild streak. Despite his waning political power in the Democratic Party, Martin had and continued to make huge sums of money as a lawyer. For example, the government were building 52 miles of expressway through Michigan and placing compulsory purchase orders on land in Livingston County. Martin could get the best deal for local landowners and took a percentage for himself. Although curiously, there's a bend in the expressway just outside Brighton, and his friends say the engineers put it there to avoid crossing land Martin himself owned. He was making a lot of money, but he spent it freely. He had a large boat, the County Mayo, on Lake Michigan. I remember he liked to moor it in the Detroit Yacht Club alongside the Ford family yacht. He would put a record player on deck and play songs from Mayo for the gentry of Detroit at full volume. Of course, there would be a tricolor on the stern. On one occasion, he brought his tricolor with him to New York, as Tom Kelly remembers. Churchill went to New York at one stage, and he stayed in the Waldorf Astoria. And we were told that Martin found out about this and checked into the Waldorf Astoria and checked into a suite above Churchill's and hung an enormous tricolor out the windows of the Waldorf Astoria over Churchill's suite. And, you know, it all went to enhance the reputation of sort of Jack the Lad. Martin Lavin also spent his wealth freely in Brighton, freely and sometimes inconspicuously. Mary Ann Baer is a local historian, and while researching Martin's life, she encountered a breadman who told her a remarkable story. He delivered uh, bread, so he got into a lot of people's homes and so on, and he said that when he could see that this family needed some help, financial or whatever, he would just tell Martin about it and it would be taken care of, you know, without any big brouhaha, just was taken care of. No. That was, <laughs> that was an, uh, another side that I hadn't heard before. He was a Robin Hood figure, taking from the rich and giving to the poor, or so it seemed, until a man called Jim Turner came into the area. Jim Turner's wife was heiress to a fortune from the Hush Puppy Shoe Company, and he borrowed against the money to bring out a glossy magazine called Today. The local Detroit newspapers were on strike at the time, which gave the magazine greater prominence on the newsstands. But what really sold it were sensational revelations Turner had to make about the lawyers of Livingston County in general, and Martin Lavin in particular. Roger Lane, journalist. His main theme as he started up was a challenge to some of the activities of Lavin dealing with the estates of aged widows. And there was a lot of doubt in some minds about the quality of the work 
and even the uh, ethical standards that Lavin was following. One of Turner's allegations against Martin Lavin related to a woman named Orpha Bow. She was an elderly woman who inherited property from her brother in California, and she approached Martin to get her money out of the property. According to Jim Turner, he had her sign a blank deed which she never saw again. The magazine claimed that Martin sold the property to his secretary, then collected rent on it for three years, then sold it again to a California couple for $20,000. Jim Turner went on to claim that Mrs. Bow, who was on welfare, tried for three years to get her money from Martin but failed. Eventually, he gave her $3,000. Then and now, the lawyers of Livingston County portrayed Jim Turner as vindictive and inaccurate, not understanding the complexities of probate work. Bill McCreary, who worked in Martin's office. I really don't think that the improprieties alleged were uh, factual. I just uh, was never convinced of that, and I was probably in a much better position to observe it than uh, than many others. And as in many instances where uh, where human character is on trial, people are always ready to believe the worst. That can uh, be especially true when the character on trial is an attorney. Joe Cox, a lawyer from nearby Fowlerville. Well, there was some truth in it. In any any bar, you'll have some things that uh, don't turn up right. Right after that, we had quite a few young lawyers come out here who were possibly recruited. And there, there was some uh, definitely monetary damage to some guy like me. I was picked on some, too. The newspaper wrote me up as longtime friend of Martin Lavin's. <laughs> and I, say, I used to call him up and say, how are you, longtime friend? <laughs> the legal community were suffering, and they went on the offensive. Some approached advertisers in Turner's magazine and tried to get them to withdraw their support. A local judge, Michael Carlin, a friend of Martin's, accused Jim Turner of contempt of court after he'd written that Martin Lavin had corrupted the entire judiciary of Livingston County. Turner was found guilty, fined $150, and sentenced to 15 days in jail. Two years later, the decision was overturned. How he handled the, uh, one of these cases. Roger Lane, who wrote a thesis on the affair, said that while Turner was sensational and had no journalistic training, his research was thorough. This goes into his efforts to confirm, and he did. You know, he went out and he got copies of some canceled checks and all that kind of stuff. He did a good news job to support what he was putting in the paper. This was not something he sat there and invented. He was a capable newspaper guy, even though his training was very limited. But Turner had started the ball rolling. Stories appeared in the papers about the workings of the courts in Livingston County, which suggested cronyism. The practices of the probate court were called into question and Martin's son, Brian, was suspended from practice for allegedly mishandling funds while he was justice of the peace. He was later reinstated and completely exonerated. A lot of the silk-stockinged, sophisticated thieves who practiced law in the blue-ribbon firms ran scared and were looking for a fall guy. He's referring to the State Bar of Michigan, which set up a panel to investigate Martin Lavin and several other lawyers. It was to be Martin's hardest fight yet. Jim Turner, the magazine publisher, decided to run for governor of Michigan and used his allegations against the legal profession in his campaign. The legal profession fought back. Martin's friend John Brennan used a false name and court notepaper to find out about Jim Turner's past, unsavory details of which were passed on to the media. 
Jim Turner's campaign was scuppered. Brennan was later censured for his behaviour. Meanwhile, Martin continued to visit Ireland, and it was during one of those visits he decided to meet with one of the surviving Rouans, Senator Sean T., whose brother Tommy he had killed in 1922. The meeting was arranged for Johnny Walsh's, who lived above his garage in Kilshima. Sean T. was a nightly visitor, and Pat, Johnny's son, was in the room when Martin and Sean T. came face to face. I suppose you could say there was a few electric moments when the two met. And they looked at each other, and for a short time, maybe five or ten seconds, you could see it all being relived the history of what happened, the emotion, fear even, uh, regret. It all happened and it passed between them more in a glance than anything that was said. There was a, a period of silence, which again was, it seemed to be a long time, and it was probably only a few seconds, as people just waited and wondered what's, what is going to happen here. So eventually, Martin said, that he was sorry, or some words to that effect. That was the the sentiment he was expressing, that he was very sorry for what had happened and that he hoped that he would be forgiven That uh, because he was interested in a reconciliation. Uh, Sean T. paused and um, thought about it and said, OK, I'll accept it. And they shook hands and they embraced a little bit a rather unusual scene, I suppose, in those days to see two males embracing. Uh, that was it, really, but the message was given and received. Uh, the reconciliation was, was brought about. However, Martin Lavin never approached the family of Willie Morton, his second victim that night in 22. Willie's nephew, Jerry, remembers the family had no time for Martin. I could never see my father forgiven Lavin for what he'd done, not till the day he died. He's dead since 1971. They didn't feel too good about him, that if, if ever they left hands on him or if ever they caught up with him afterwards, I believe they were going to kill him. Martin's final visits to Ireland were not as happy as in earlier years. He no longer held his annual dinner for IRA comrades in the Gresham. It became too painful to see fewer and fewer still alive every year. However, he still had it in mind to set up a home in Ireland. Driving up the Dublin hills to step aside, where Martin built a bungalow. He built this bungalow to entice Elizabeth over to spend his closing days in Dublin. Didn't tell her anything. This was to be a surprise. Well, this is the place. There's the bungalow there. And uh, it had every modern amenity. Waste disposal, every American gadget that you can think of. It even had a replica of the fireplace that they had in Michigan. Martin went to great trouble to make it absolutely perfect for Elizabeth. But she looked over the place, didn't say anything. But in the final analysis, no, she wouldn't come here. Uh, that was it. Martin was, was bitterly disappointed. And it was indeed a great blow to him. Johnny Kelly from Kilshima remembers the last time he saw Martin. He drove him from Kilshima to Shannon Airport. He seemed full of remorse, very quiet in the car on the way up. I think he felt it was his last visit to Ireland. I took him to the airport. As I was driving away, I was watching Martin standing on his own, and he watched me going down the road, and he waved, and he looked very, very downy. 
the most sorrowful person, as far as I remember, ever taken to Shannon. They were leaving for America. In Michigan, Martin Lavin was still news because he had arrived in America using an alias. His citizenship was questioned. It was also claimed his legal qualifications were bogus and the Michigan State Bar Association were still pressuring him for answers to their questions about his legal practice. He claimed he was too sick to testify. They didn't believe him. Eventually, an independent medical examination showed he was right. They struck a deal with him and he agreed to surrender his license in return for the adjournment of the disbarment proceedings. But there was more to come. The Internal Revenue Service said he owed $100,000 in unpaid taxes. He pleaded no contest and paid the taxes and a fine. In his final years, Martin had beside his chair a tape recorder playing Dublin street sounds, which he had recorded during one of his visits. He also kept a copy of the Dublin telephone directory nearby. When he met his maker, he was at peace with himself. He was at peace with his God. He was at peace with his family. And he was at peace with his friends. In the final analysis, Martin Lavin was a born rebel. It was his rebel nature that turned him against his former leader, Michael Collins. He could not embrace compromise and could not appreciate Collins' vision. Like all diehard rebels, he was indispensable to revolution, only to become an impediment to the resolution of conflict which requires compromise. Even his marriage to Elizabeth Galbraith, an Antrim Scots Presbyterian loyalist, could be seen as a defiance of convention, love fired by the attraction of opposites. It didn't entice him, however, to accept the politics of her people. He even appropriately died before the midnight hour on July 11, 1976, as if he could not face another twelfth. <laughs>